The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, July 31st at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the New Testament letter of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to pick back up this morning. Um, and God's grace, if he's, if he's with me here in this, we're going to actually finish chapter 1 this morning. Um, and so as we, we get to it, I just want to go back a little bit to the beginning and just hear where we are and hear the gratitude of Paul just kind of pouring out of his heart, kind of washing like waves in the ocean over this church and, and feel just that power as we get to where he's going here towards the end of this chapter. So if you've got your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we'll just pick it up right there in verse 1. It begins this way, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That phrase has captured my attention for the last several weeks. Full conviction. And as I was thinking about us and thinking about this phrase and thinking about all we've gone over in these verses, and I was reminded of a story that I heard years ago uh, about a man not many of you will probably be familiar with. His name is Harvey Kahn. Some of you might know the name, but Harvey Kahn served uh, the end of his life as a professor of missions at a seminary in Philadelphia. But prior to serving as a professor of missions, Harvey and his wife were missionaries themselves. In the late 1950s, uh, early 1960s, they were missionaries to Korea. I remember Korea in the late 50s, early 60s was not the place it is now. It had been torn apart on the post-end of war. Uh, there was a lot of political and cultural unrest, even the relationship between the United States and Korea and, and the presence of Americans in Korea at that time was, was a difficult proposition in different ways. And Harvey Kahn and his wife went there as missionaries to preach the gospel. And being a pastor, being a teacher, he, he went about it the way he understood. He was writing pamphlets. He was trying to get on radio programs and, and preaching. Uh, but shortly after being there, he and his wife developed um, a deep and abiding passion for what you could probably consider to be the most unlovable of those in the society at the time as the society saw them. Uh, you know, an honor-shame culture like you find in, in, in many of these Asian countries. Uh, Harvey Kahn and his wife developed a, a deep, abiding passion uh, for women who were living in brothels at the time there in Korea many not by their own choice, born into those situations. And he and his wife began going into those brothels and trying to reach these women, trying to lead Bible studies, trying to, trying to work with them. And, and they did this for a long period of time. And for a while, they weren't having much fruit. There wasn't much fruit there. Uh, what they would hear back as they would try to talk to these women about who God was, was they'd hear back, there's no way 
that your God would ever have anything to do with me. Like the, the way the culture worked and the way that they were understanding and seeing this, it just, there was no, there was no breakthrough happening. And so Harvey Kahn decided to come at things a little bit differently than he had previously been coming at them. And he began to open up the Old Testament and he began to tell these women and show these women in the Bible the story of God's gracious choosing love. And he began to tell them of the story of Israel and show them how God set his affection on his people, not because of anything in them, not because they were the most numerous, not because they were the strongest, not because they were the prettiest or the wealthiest. There wasn't anything in them that, that drew God's particular affection towards them. God loved them because he chose to love them. He loved them simply because he loved them. And as he began to tell them the story and work with them about God's choosing love, they began to ask him different questions. And the question that began to come back as he would work with them in these things was, how can I know if your God loves me? And it was then that he began to go back to the story of God's son who came and lived the life that we were created to live and then died the death that we deserve to die in our place and how God accepted his sacrifice in our place and raised him from the dead. And then he ascended to God's right hand where he is right now. He calls all people to believe in him and to receive his forgiveness and his security and to know his grace and to be his family. And these women, hearing this, all of a sudden something began to change in their minds and in their hearts. It went from how can I know that he loves me to them understanding I could never actually love him and want him if he hadn't already loved me first. And the penny began to drop for many of these women that Harvey and his wife were working with. The gospel became alive. It moved from mere words that he was trying to communicate and work with to the living power that the gospel actually is. All of a sudden, very little things that were massive to them began to be changed. They actually began to look at themselves, their own faces in the mirror, which they never would do before. And as they would look at themselves in the mirror, they no longer saw all of the shame and all of the stuff of the world in which they had lived. They saw themselves as chosen and loved and part of God's family. And they couldn't stop talking about it. Everything about their lives began to change and they couldn't stop. And all of a sudden the fruit began to grow and the gospel began to spread. And these ladies in this place in the most overlooked part of their society and world heard the news of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, just the way Paul talks about it here. And they received it with full conviction and their lives changed harvey and his wife and these ladies in korea they were living out the story of what paul is writing about here in first thessalonians more than we even have time to really get into because as the gospel took root in these ladies hearts it began to change their lives you know what they began to do they left the brothel they had many of them born into it they had never known anything but it they left so what happened Multiple times, Harvey was kidnapped by the managers of the brothels and beaten within an inch of his life because he was ruining their business. Same thing that you'll hear happen to Paul over and over again as Paul goes and preaches the gospel. And people hear it in the power of the Holy Spirit and receive it with full conviction and everything changes. 
They were living out the vitality of what we hear Paul celebrating and encouraging this church in here in this chapter. And so I got captivated by this whole phrase and this idea of what it is to live with full conviction. I want to live like that. I mean, I want that. And so I've had to consider, like, what gets in the way? What gets in the way of our living with this kind of vitality and full conviction, the way that Paul talks about it? Like, how do we actually get in on that? How do we get in on what we're reading here and, and hear about happening as the gospel takes root and full conviction becomes the descriptor of the way we live? Well, I think the rest of, of chapter one gives us a, a picture of that vitality. And then at the same time, Paul's going to give us a little bit of a path into how we get in on it. So let's keep reading and, and listen to Paul. And I say he gives us a picture in the next few verses because I think Full conviction and the vitality of living with full conviction is something that's better pointed to. It's better pointed out than it is trying to describe. You have to kind of see it. And that's what we see in these next few verses as Paul's continuing to just remind them of what he sees in them. Verse 6, Paul says, you became imitators. That's the key word there, imitators of us and of the Lord. And how did they become imitators? For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They received the gospel, not just as a message, but with full conviction and the transforming power of their lives in the midst of a tremendous amount of pressure to not do so. Everything about the lives of these Thessalonians was going to change as they received the gospel. There was family pressure, cultural pressure, political pressure, economic pressure, social pressure, pressure on every side of them to not receive this gospel and live in light of it. And yet with all the pressure and all the threats and all the affliction that would come for them becoming followers of Jesus, they received this gospel and became imitators of Jesus who suffered in our place and Paul who suffered for the sake of the gospel, and they did it with joy. They did it with great joy. Not because they could grit their teeth and clench their knuckles. It's because they truly believed that Jesus really was better. That's what full conviction really is. They really believed that Jesus was better. Better than everything else and worth whatever it might cost them. You hear stories about it in our day and in our life. Randomly, it's a, it's a bit of a different time and a bit of a different age. I think you're going to see more stories coming out. But even this last week, if you follow the sporting world, the story of Jalene Daniels came back up on the screen. Follower of Jesus, professional soccer player. She did refused to play this last week, this last game. And she was de-rostered, which means she doesn't get paid. Because her team was celebrating Pride Month and changed the uniforms to turn them into pride flags. And she says, it's not my job to actually wear that flag because it's against what I actually believe. She's written letters to all of her teammates. She's been a professional soccer player for a decade. She's written letters to all of her teammates before, letting them know how much she loves them and how she doesn't try to define them by these different identities that they carry, that she just loves them. But it cost her. It cost her her salary. It cost her a lot of relationships. In fact, the city in which she plays, there's a large supporters group of the team in that city who believes the troubles they're having as a team is because of her presence. It's a bit like Jonah, just throw her out of the boat. Maybe this thing will stop. It's all her fault. I mean, as a kid, if you, if you play something like soccer, your, your biggest dream is you know, to represent your country. She had the opportunity to do that as well. 
But it was at the exact same time she was called up that our country was celebrating the same thing. And she said, I can't do it. There are, you don't understand how little opportunity you actually get to do that. But for her, Jesus was simply better than whatever doing all of that against her conscience would have cost her. This is what's happening in the life of this church. They're receiving the gospel with full conviction, and it's going to cost them. It's going to cost them dearly as the story goes on, but they just believed that Jesus was better. And so they became imitators of Paul, imitators of the Jesus and the way that they lived. And therefore, as you keep reading, they became examples to all the saints, to all the believers around. <coughs> Verse 7 Paul reminds them, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. I mean, going beyond the city now. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. So now this gospel message, this good news about Jesus, it's reaching the outer ends beyond Thessalonica into Achaia, the larger region. They're just continuing to, to speak this gospel, to tell this story. As John Stott would say, they were gossiping the gospel everywhere they would go. They couldn't help but talk about Jesus. They couldn't help but relate to other people on the basis of who Jesus is and what he's done in their life. They couldn't help but communicate this message. And this message was going forth from them in affliction throughout the entire region. And it wasn't just their words. But Paul says, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Paul's saying, when I get to places, what I hear about is how you're living. Your faith is, is euphemism in some sense, therefore the way that what you believe is dictating how you live. Your faith in the Lord is, I'm getting word of all of this because you're living such different lives now that everyone's talking about it. Your gospel living, your gospel life, it's, it's going before you. It's much quieter in some sense in the words we communicate, but it's no less visible and powerful See, this church didn't sequester themselves from the Greek world in which they found themselves in and try to build their own little thing off in a corner somewhere where everyone leave, would leave them alone. No, they remained exactly where they were in all of their stations in life. They just lived differently. And it was powerful. And word about it was getting out everywhere. In fact, chapter 4 is going to deal a lot with this living that Paul is talking about. Their courage, their steadfastness, their joy, it, it was evident in how they lived. And so Paul's literally saying, he, he said, you guys have, have become a, a blueprint, a living blueprint for what gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded living really is. It's what it looks like. I can go anywhere, Paul's saying, in any place that I go to visit, and I visit any church, and I can look back and say, that's what I'm talking about. I can point back to you and say, this is what I'm talking about. You've literally become a blueprint for full conviction, for living in the vitality of the gospel. And it's spreading like wildfire. It's beyond the bounds of the city. There was no Facebook, no Instagram, no Twitter, no organized church campaign for getting the word out. It was just people living with full conviction in the gospel who really believed that Jesus was better. And so as I was reading through this again and thinking through it again, I had to ask myself, rolling that phrase around in my head, how much of this do we actually see in Richmond today? 
I mean, how much of this living do we see, these works of faith, these labors of love, this steadfastness of hope, this full conviction on display through the words and the lives that God's people live? I, I think we see some. But I want to see more. I want more. Who doesn't want more of this? I mean, who doesn't want in on what we're reading here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1? And so we've got we've to come to grips with what gets in our way. What holds us back? What stymies the life of vitality in full conviction? Truly believing and living out the reality that Jesus is better. Well, I think the last two verses of chapter 1 are going to help us, help us come to grips with that and help us forward. I think the last few verses give us a picture and a sense of what full conviction looks like, like when you can point to it. I think these last couple of verses help us see what gets in the way and how we get in on this living and this vitality. These last couple of verses, Paul brings this kind of opening overflow of gratitude, just wave after wave of gratitude and evidence of God's grace at work to a close with a summation, really. Let's listen to it in verses 9 and 10. Paul says that talking about these other churches that he's going to, they themselves report concerning us, the kind of reception we had among you. They've heard about all this already. And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I honestly think you can read these last two verses as shorthand for what it means and looks like to live with full conviction, with the kind of vitality that Paul's been pointing out in all the previous verses. Turning from idols to serve the living and true God while waiting for Jesus' return. This, in shorthand form, is what defined this church community. They simply were living differently even in the midst of great pressure and affliction to live otherwise because they believe that Jesus is better. And that made them a model people, a model community. And so I was thinking to myself, if the portrait of Christianity, of vitality, of full conviction in chapter one is what I really want, and it's what I hope we really want, and it's what I would say that Richmond really needs, then I think these last two verses help us understand what gets in our way and how we get in on what it is we really want. What gets in our way? Paul says very clearly, our idols do. How do we get in on this vitality? It involves turning from them to the real Jesus. Period. It's a people turning from idols to the living God. See, if we have any hope of actually living in the midst of this vitality and living in full conviction, experiencing what we're reading in in chapter 1, we have to talk a little bit about idolatry, that which gets in the way of the vitality and the conviction we want to live in. Idolatry, very simply, is is just the, the creation of and then the service to any substitute our heart, our mind creates in in the place of God. It's just the creation of God's substitutes and the service of those substitutes. 
We're looking to these things to do for us or be for us what only God can do and only who God can be, really. And here's the trouble with it. No one summed it up better than than John Calvin did centuries ago. Part of what defines being a sinful human being is the fact that each and every single one of our hearts is a perpetual factory of these idols. Constantly making them. Constantly crafting them. Constantly putting before the eyes of our heart an alternative hope, an alternative peace, an alternative joy, an alternative pleasure, an alternative satisfaction other than God and God alone. It's fair to say, and I say this all in all honesty, that as a sinful human being, worshiping and serving these idols that our heart is always trying to craft is one of the most natural things for us to do. It's part of what it is to be a sinful human being. Each and every single one of us has all kinds of hopes, God's substitutes, idols in our hearts that we are believing into in various ways. You know, in fact, it's common in the church to hear a conversation kind of recycle as to talking about whether or not people are unbelievers or believers in Jesus. Are you a believer in Jesus? Are you an unbeliever? And defining people in those categories. Let me just say it this way for us and put it to rest. Every single person is a believer. Everybody is. It's part of what it is to be human. And you've got an absolutely overcrowded heart full of things that you are believing in that you are believing into. Authentic Christianity, the vitality and the full conviction that we hear and that we see lived out in this letter, Paul pointing back to, is actually a call to become an unbeliever in these idols and a particular focused believer in Jesus. That's what it is. It's actually to become an idol atheist. That's the call of authentic, vital Christianity. I heard it described this way. It was helpful for me, and we'll, we'll work it through for the rest of the morning. One pastor was talking about this, this factory of idols in our heart, and he, he said, you have to think about your heart like an overcrowded boardroom. So if you picture those movies when they go into those big offices and those big meetings, and there's those boardroom tables that seat like 30 people, executives around them, you can imagine your heart like an overcrowded boardroom. There's the political you, the social you, the economic you, the the family you, all the different pieces of you, and then all the different things you think are going to bring you the stability and the peace and the joy. All these different things are crowded around that table in your heart. It's overcrowded, and all of them have a voice, and all of them have a vote, and you find yourself constantly pulled and fragmented, unable to even make decisions at times because it's so overcrowded. And he said, your overcrowded heart has two fundamental ways that it can respond to Jesus, that it can deal with Jesus, right? The first one is to bring Jesus into the room, find him a chair and get him a seat around the table. And now Jesus has got a voice in the meeting. He's got a vote in the decision, but he's just one amongst many other things. The other way that your heart can actually deal with Jesus is to step out of the room and to tell Jesus, I need you to go in there and get rid of everybody else. It's all yours. I need you in there, fire everybody, get them all out. 
You see, you see the problem with, with taking Jesus and giving him a seat and a vote in the overcrowded reality of your heart in the presence of all of these other substitutes is that after a while, when, when things aren't going well for you, you're left wondering why Jesus doesn't work. Because he's just one thing among many other things. You see, if we're going to actually experience the vitality that we're reading about, the life of full conviction that's on display in this story, in the, the letter that Paul's written to this church, we're going to have to be able to distinguish the real Jesus from all of the idols that exist in our heart. If we don't do that regularly and continually for ourselves and for one another, I can promise you that Richmond is not actually going to hear the gospel. And you and I are not actually going to be able to live the lives that God has given us with this full conviction in this vitality. People, including ourselves, will just hear, become a Christian, do better, and be better. Because Jesus is just one other voice against all the other competing voices that are trying to gain our allegiance and our hope and our obedience. And so we've got to be able to distinguish the real Jesus from all the things that are crowding out our heart. And in the last, I don't know, couple of decades, probably in the life of the church, there has been a lot of talk and a lot of writing, and it's been amazing, about idols, about what they are and how, what they do in our hearts. And so I would encourage you, go pick up Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, probably one of the best. He's probably the most prolific voice about this and probably got the majority of the church talking about this again for the first time in a long time. But what I'm going to do this morning is I'm just going to try to take what's been written and it's been helpful, bring it all down, try to boil it down to two things, help us see some of these things that are going on in our heart and the path forward that Paul gives us in these verses. If we're going to talk about idols, there's two primary ways that you can talk about them, that you can consider them, can see them. The first is that idols are simply false gods. That's what they are. They're, they're false gods. By this, I mean they are anything or anyone that you believe, and you're going to have to be honest with yourself in your heart. This is you being honest, you willing to be honest, you willing to allow the Holy Spirit to help you see what's really going on in your heart. There anything or anyone that you truly see as essential to your life, that you must have for your life to be livable. Without them, you're not sure how life is livable. Without them, you're not sure how you're happy. When they get threatened, you go into attack mode to protect them. Idols, be they people, be they things, be they attitudes, be they ideas, they are things that you and I are essentially looking to to save us. Save us from our sorrow, save us from our sadness, save us from our insecurity, save us from the life we don't want to live, to save us. We're looking to them to, to save us from all of those things, to be for us the stability we want, to be for us the peace we're after, to be for us the justice we want, to be for us the pleasure and the joy our hearts crave. We're looking to them to save us and to be for us all of those things that only God and God alone can be. And now we could spend five weeks just talking about all the various things that fill up the boardrooms of our heart. So I'll just give you one example that I think is probably resident in all of us. And that is the seat occupied in our heart that craves the approval of other people. 
the opinions of others, the inclusion, being included by others into things, being invited by others into things, their opinions of us, seeing us well, being liked, they become the thing that convinces us that we're enough, that we're okay. We look to them to save us from being insecure, to save us from the anxiety that this life produces. We look to them to be our peace. So when those people speak well of us, when they invite us and they include us on things, what we're doing is we're allowing those things to be our salvation. We're asking their opinions and their inclusion of us and their good thoughts about us to actually save us. And here's the deal. Forget the fact that it's idolatrous, right? Forget the fact that we're looking to those opinions and that inclusion to be for us what only God can be and is for us in Christ and the gospel. It's actually unfair to everyone else around us. Because they can never fulfill all of those demands that our heart is putting on them. No one even signed up for that expectation. We just put it on them and we look to them and try to draw out of them what our heart is craving for peace, for enoughness. It's not new. In fact, in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3, it says this, Son of man, this is the Lord speaking to Ezekiel to say to Israel, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. It is what our hearts do. We take things and we bring them into the boardroom. We give them a seat. We give them a vote and we look to them to save us at different moments in our life. To be our peace, to be our deliverance, to be our security, to be our joy, to be for us what only God can be. And they get in the boardroom and they begin to convince us that so many things that we think we want are actually things we really need. And they're going to be the thing that supplies it. Again, it's not new. You may have heard of Tertullian, church father, centuries ago. Uh, In his ministry, he tells the story in one of his journals of a time when a a man from the church in which Tertullian was actually serving um, came to him all kinds of distressed all kinds of frustrated. And Tertullian asked him what was going on. And this man was having an internal conflict between his professional life, his business life, and his faith. Not new. You ever had one of those? He was feeling like to be obedient to the Lord and faithful to Christ was going to cost him something in his business, and he was all kinds of frustrated. And so Tertullian, he encouraged him to remain faithful to Jesus, faithful to what he knew was right, faithful to to, to what he knew was true. And the man got frustrated and he looked at him and he said, but you don't understand. And he said, what don't I understand? He said, I have to live. This man was feeling the pressure. Faithfulness to Jesus where I am is going to cost me. You want me to remain faithful, but if I remain faithful, I'm going to lose something, but I've got to live. Do you know what Tertullian said? Do you? Do you really have to live? These things that get into our hearts and they begin to chirp 
And they begin to convince us that things we might want become things we have to have and need. Here's the deal, friends. It's hard work to actually begin to see what it is we are actually looking to to be for us what only God can be. It's hard. You're going to actually have to begin to take apart the things you say from the things you truly actually believe and lean into. The good news is God's Holy Spirit taking up residence in our hearts helps us to see those things clearly. If we would only but look to him to help us see them, we can begin to do the work of actually diagnosing those things that have been taking up space in the boardroom that we've been allowing to have a vote alongside of Jesus, that we've been looking to, to be for us who only he can be. This is what idols are. They're false gods. And when we serve our idols and look to our idols, we're actually exchanging the truth of God, that Jesus is really better. We're exchanging it for a lie. I heard it said one time, and it, it stung, and it still stings even when I repeat it. But when we look to these idols to be for us what only God can be, we're actually repenting of Jesus. We're repenting of him. We're turning from him to something else to be for us what only he can be. It's painful. But it's what keeps us from experiencing the kind of full conviction and vitality we're reading about. Idols are false gods. But the other way that you can kind of understand them and how they begin to work in our hearts is understanding that idols are also false concepts of the true God. This is what Paul was getting after in Romans 1 when he said, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, and they became futile in their minds, and their hearts became darkened. You and I can become captive to thoughts about Jesus that actually don't help us. Thoughts about Jesus that are actually below him. A.W. Tozer talks about this, and he calls it thoughts of God and Christ that are unworthy of him. And we get these thoughts by not actually trying to see him and know him and enjoy him for who he is. We pick these thoughts up along the way. They're the bumper sticker ideas of Jesus that we pick up in tweets and on cups and on shirts and on a life not really spent trying to know him, trying to see him, trying to enjoy him. There are thoughts of him that are unworthy of him, and we take them in, and we begin to live according to them. But they're not the real thoughts of the real Jesus. They're false ideas of the true God. And so we find ourselves sometimes feeling like we're not forgiven, believing that he really hasn't forgiven us. We find ourselves sometimes feeling not defended, not protected and not secured by him, like he's not capable of it or not willing to do it. And the problem isn't with Jesus. The problem is with the idea of Jesus in our mind that we're actually believing and living into. It's an idea of Jesus that is below him, and he's not that worthy of him, and it needs to be put away. This is why it's so important that you and I seek to try to see Jesus every single day as he reveals himself to us in his word. Because when our heart is fearful, we need to see the real Jesus as our defender. When our heart is greedy and, and lustful, we, we need to see that the real Jesus is our only true pleasure. 
when our heart is overly demanding, wanting that pound of flesh, we, we need to see the real Jesus as our true justice. When our heart is sinful and we're awakened to the depth of our own darkness and sin in our own heart, we need to see the real Jesus as our true atoning sacrifice. It's why we need to see him, because our hearts can get easily captivated by things that are not true about him, by thoughts of him that are not worthy of him, that are below him, that leave us constantly anxious and frustrated and bound up. They're untrue thoughts about the real Jesus. Now, we have some substantial things that are also threatening the vitality a life of full conviction in the church today, especially in the West. Sociologists outside of the church tell us that the culture in which we live in, in the West, and I would say in particular in America, is a culture that is, is basically living on three foundational pillars. The pillars of radical individualism, personal autonomy, and rampant consumption. It's quite the pantheon of things that captures our heart. In fact, way back in the 1970s, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great pastor in London, was writing in a letter to another pastor, and he wrote that he was worried. This is his own day. This is back, I think the letter was in like 71, I think. He was worried that the relative health and comfort of the world would leave the church too satisfied and comfortable to reach the depths of desperation necessary, coming to an end of themselves and fully to Jesus. He was on to something. And sociologists tell us that our culture is built on individualism, autonomy, and consumption. And when they look at the world in which we live, it says they're saying that it's leaving us as a people outside the church, as a people who demand maximum say with minimum responsibility, a people who are quick to point our finger at others and yet guard our own right to do whatever we want a people who expect the right to lob an opinion in any situation with no hint of responsibility for its outcome because what we exalt is our right over our responsibility with those rights. It's leaving us as a people, this individualism and consumption, as a people who believe that we can do it all and have it all. Yet as one writer said, we live paralyzed with the fear of better options all around us. And so unlimited options and the search for lifestyle perfection leaves us paralyzed frozen by choice anxiety and the pressure to perform up to everyone's expectation. And he said, so it's better that we sit back and critique without consequence. Critique those who are actually trying to live, while at the same time being eaten up with envy of those who seem to reach the definition of success that we have. And it traps us. Listen to the words they're using. Trapped. Bound. Trapped in our own anxiety of getting it wrong we unconsciously shift the blame to everyone else around us for our own lack of development and then condemn ourselves for our inability to achieve the lifestyle we want. These pillars, this little pantheon of our own culture, even the world is looking at it going, it's leaving us trapped. It's leaving us stuck. It's leaving us bound. It's leaving us frustrated. And this sociologist said it, it creates a toxic entitlement. We're a people who want it all without sacrifice or responsibility. We're looking to this individualism and this autonomy and this freedom of consumption with options to save us. To be for us the peace we want, to be for us the pleasure we want, to be for us the stability we want, to be for us the safety we're after. 
We're looking to it to save us, and it's leaving us trapped. It's leaving us bound. And it would be foolish to think that in the church, we're not taking these idols into our own hearts. That we're not taking these things into our hearts and setting them as iniquity in front of our eyes. That it's not shaping us more than we think. In fact, Mark Sayers, he's an Australian pastor, probably one of the most astute commentators on the, the life of the church presently, he says that these pillars of, of society, I'll call them, the individualism, autonomy, consumption, has created a consumer Christianity, which is a form of cultural Christianity that compromises the cross by mixing it with the self, the worship of God with the worship of options, our own personal autonomy, low commitment, and opinion over responsibility. And it leaves us as a church, large C church in a present day world like the one that we live in and the culture that we live in, looking around for everyone else to blame for our own lack of spiritual vitality and our own lack of growth. It's everyone else's fault. But we've just taken in the idols of our day into our hearts. And Sayers says that we've just become the sacrificial lambs on the altar of the consumer goods, driving us and yet undermining us. We've offered our bodies as living sacrifices, being conformed to the patterns of this world, patterns that are shaping us. It's what gets in the way. The key to this vitality, the key to this life of full conviction, like chapter one, is the constant turning from idols to the living God. The message of the gospel is not, will you add Jesus to the boardroom? Will you add Jesus to the table? Will you add Jesus to your life? Will you give him a vote amongst all the other votes? It's will you let him in and fire everybody? Will you risk it all your entire life on Jesus being better? Will you throw yourself down at his feet? Will you call out to him and tell him, I'm an idolater? My love for you is half-hearted at best. And I fear it will always be that way. But you're what I want. You're better. Will you come in and just clean house for all who would turn, for all who would continue to turn from those idols to see and enjoy the real Jesus? All you will hear is, I came for idolaters just like you. All I need is your willingness. I came not for the healthy, but for, for you, for the sick. John Whitlett, who's a professor up at Calvin Seminary, he says, when the church gathers together, the power of the church together, when the church gathers together and sings, praise God from whom all blessings flow, we are declaring together down with the gods from whom no blessings flow. Down with believing that we can achieve joy and paradise by voting for the right party or by making certain amounts of money or by satisfying the whim to buy every new gadget that hits the market. Down with all the gods that can't satisfy. You see, when the world fails you and you get frustrated and you get hurt, you can look at it and go, I wasn't expecting you to be my peace. It's okay. I wasn't expecting you to be my stability. I wasn't expecting you to be my pleasure. I wasn't expecting you to be my joy. Jesus is better. It's okay. I wasn't expecting you to do that for me, to be that for me, to save me. Only he can save me. He's better. 
Paul reminds them, and we see it as we read it, this church was constantly turning. That's what Luther was getting after in his 95 Theses, in the first Theses. All of life is repentance. All of life is turning. All of life is seeing these things that are getting into the room, getting into the boardroom, getting to the table, constantly casting out their ideas and drawing our opinions. It's constantly seeing them and turning from them. They were turning from these idols, which are very real in their day, and it cost them. Turning from their allegiance to Caesar and all the protection and the freedom it bought. Turning from their allegiance to all the other gods they had believed their entire life was going to bless their business and bless their family and bless their life and bless their friends. Turning from all of that constantly because they believed that Jesus was better and they were turning to serve him, desiring to live according to his will for the patterns of their life to be reshaped according to his word and according to his desires and according to his pleasures and his joys. This is what Paul gets at later. We'll come back to that. But they were turning, turning from those idols to the real Jesus while they waited for him, waited for the blessed return of their Savior. Go back and read the letter this week, every single chapter. And again, the chapter numbers and verse numbers, they weren't part of the letter, but every single chapter as you read it, ends with some reference to Jesus's return because it was the centerpiece of their hope. It was the centerpiece of their joy. It was the centerpiece of their security. It was the centerpiece of their encouragement. And they waited with eagerness for Jesus's return so much so that it was evident. It was clear. It was a distinctive of how they lived. They were overwhelmed with the fact that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead that God publicly vindicated Jesus' sacrifice in their place for their sins. Jesus wasn't a dead, mute idol that sat up on the shelf. He was alive. And he was better than everything imaginable. The resurrection they knew was God's declaration that he was satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice. It was a guarantee of his return. They were waiting for Jesus to come. The one who delivered them from the coming day of wrath. Oh man, this is what made him happy. This is what gave them courage. This is what animated them. They knew that idol factories like us needed rescuing. That we couldn't rescue ourselves. We couldn't save ourselves. That our idolatry and our our constant filling of our heart with other substitutes for God was deserving of God's judgment and condemnation and his wrath. That it was treason. That it was sin against him. But they had come to believe with full conviction that the real Jesus rescues idolaters like them. That's the message of the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. That changes everything. Believing in your whole heart that he died in your place for your sin, condemned, he hung on the cross in your place for your idolatry, satisfying the wrath of God so that he might rescue you from the wrath to come. That overwhelmed them. And it set them free to live. It set them free to enjoy Jesus and live. Just like them, we're guilty idolaters. Our hearts are guilty of the same things, but for all who trust in Jesus and his atoning death, the threat of God's future judgment is gone. This is what lets us live with joyful expectation and anticipation and eagerness for his return. He delivers us from the power of those idols now and from the wrath of God to come on that day. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Friends, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted the Son of God to rescue you, you've never turned from those 
God's substitutes that have crowded out your heart, I would tell you in light of the day to come. In fact, I would beg you in light of the day to come. Call out for mercy to the one who is rich in mercy. Call out to the future judge and receive him now as your present savior. And if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, I want you to pay careful attention to the fact that this turning and serving and waiting is in the present active tense. It is a constant, ongoing reality. It is the molecular structure of vitality. That's what it's made up of. That's what the full conviction is made up of. A life of turning from idols to the living God, serving him with joy while eagerly waiting for his return. When you and I find ourselves in any, any way filling that boardroom with those substitutes, allowing them space to crowd into our heart, it's so easy for us to look to them for promises they can never deliver on. And we find ourselves trapped, anxious, and stared, not living with this kind of conviction and vitality. Friends, what Richmond needs are more churches who can honestly say, this whole cultural Christian thing isn't working. And there's no condemnation for those of you here that are caught up in it. My heart gets caught up in it. And each churches that are willing to press in on why the idols don't work and see again the need for the real Jesus. People and places who will tell the truth about idols and tell the truth about Jesus, having him, seeing him, enjoying him, serving him while waiting eagerly for his return. May God make us such a people and this church such a place marked by a life of full conviction, the kind of vitality we read alive and at work here. Let me pray for us as we get ready to respond to God's word. Lord, our hearts are so cluttered. Lord, your word says that our, our, our bodies have become your temple, the dwelling place of your spirit, but that temple needs constant cleansing. Lord, we want the vitality that we see alive and at work in this letter. We want to live with with full conviction. Let, let it be on display and seen and known in how we live. And so we need you to make your grace, we need you to make your glory and your son so real and so consuming to us that we are eagerly turning, not just once, but daily, eagerly turning from all the substitutes that have cluttered up our heart and turn to you, seeing you for who you are, enjoying you for who you are, living for you with joy as we eagerly await your return. We want to live with this kind of vitality and conviction, and we ask that you by your Holy Spirit, would do that miraculous work in our hearts. Do it in Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.